This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first-time listener, we take questions on Tuesday for about an hour, and you can call in directly at the South Carolina 843 Exchange, and that's 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. If you call, we always give preference to live callers. So I know sometimes people, you know, send me a question. They say, it's been there for a month, and I you haven't gotten to it yet. And yeah, but questions just come continually. And I could answer questions, I suppose, all day, uh, but then I wouldn't get my other duties done as a pastor. There are some that I do respond to directly, uh, but most I save here for the Bible line. Rick brings them up on the screen just because I can speak a whole lot faster than I can type. But with that said, if you do have a question and you want it answered today, just call 843-525-1859. Or again, you can email us here directly into the studio. And that email address is TBL. It stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. Well, Rick, with that said, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. Indeed, Pastor. We do have a number of questions that have come in. And we'll start with Bob and Bonnie from Okatee who write that they were doing a study in the book of 1 Samuel, and they have a question concerning chapter 28 and the account of Saul and the witch at Endor. Uh, They write, We were very sad knowing Saul had fallen so low to contradict Deuteronomy 18, 10, and 11, which reads, Or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. Our question is, was this really Samuel that the medium summoned? And we're thankful for your ministry. Well, I do. Not everyone's familiar with the text. Um, Let me just read a portion of it. Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes. In other words, he took off his kingly raiment. And the text says, and he went and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Uh, This, the one you referenced, the witch of Endor, she's called, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you uh, laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. In other words, though he's disguising himself, he's promising he won't reveal her. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. 
he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed for the Philistines are waging war against me and God has departed from me and no longer answers me either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've called you up that you may make known to me what you should do. So those are the, um, the specifics of what happened. And people have taken some different positions in reference to what actually happened on this day. A few people would say, well, this was some kind of a hallucination that the medium had or uh, a deception that she produced. But that would certainly not explain explain the the reason she was so frightened. She was terrified because this was not something that she expected or that she could pull off. Uh, some think that this is some you know demonic impersonation of Saul. I, I don't think so. Again, for the same reason I just gave. But beyond that, there would be no motive uh, for Satan to um, you know come via Samuel and to give these words to Saul. Most agree historically and just expositing the text that this was a genuine, actual appearance of Samuel. And that would certainly be supported by the reaction of the medium. Uh, she bargained, she, she got more than she bargained for. So she was really in shock as to what actually happened. But here's the root of the problem for some who take this minority view. They would say, well, if Samuel was in Sheol, then how is it that he could come out? Because when Jesus describes Sheol in Luke 16, uh, when the rich man dies and he goes to unrighteous Sheol or what we call Hades, but that can be a little uh, confusing because Hades is simply the Greek word for Sheol. And so sometimes people say, well, he went to Hades, um, meaning the place Uh, prior to the eternal retribution in Gehenna. But actually, when an Old Testament saint died who loved the Lord, he went to Hades. That's just a Greek word, but there were two compartments to it. There was unrighteous Hades, and there was righteous Hades. Uh, Righteous Sheol, unrighteous Sheol. It was the place of the grave, and people were conscious in Sheol. The the rich man who died as an unbeliever, he, he, he died and went to unrighteous Sheol not because he was rich, but because he was an unbeliever. And that's clear from the passage because Jesus uh, goes on to explain in the parable that he told uh, that, hey, look, I've got five brothers who haven't repented like me, basically is what he says. So go go warn them. Uh, So he goes to unrighteous Sheol and he's conscious, he's in agony, He, he doesn't like the place, he certainly would not want any of his loved ones to go there, whereas Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. That's righteous Sheol. Uh, Another word that's used to describe it is paradise. So at the ascension, Ephesians 4 teaches, God emptied out paradise and or what we'd call righteous Sheol or Abraham's bosom and carried those folks to heaven. Paradise is actually found three times in the New Testament, once with the thief on the cross. The day he died, he went to righteous Sheol. He didn't go to the Father's house. Heaven is you know, we think of today. He went to righteous Sheol, and uh, the Lord met him there. 
Uh, this day you will be with me in paradise. But the word paradisus continues because God took paradise and everyone who is in it and brought them into the new paradise. So Paul has a vision in 2 Corinthians 12 where he has a, a picture of, of paradise and what it's like. Uh, the Revelation speaks of, of paradise in the second chapter as being heaven or what, again, we would call the Father's house. So some would say, well, since there's a, a fixation here that they couldn't leave, well, it, you can't cross over from one to the other. In other words, if someone is in unrighteous Hades, and by the way, that will be emptied out someday because Revelation 20 and verse 14 teaches that death and Hades uh, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so typically we refer to the final resting place of unbelievers as hell. In the truest sense, no one is in Gehenna, or what we would say, hell today. I mean, we use the term loosely, but if you want to use it technically, uh, no one's in hell. It was a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, The Antichrist will go into hell. Satan will be cast into hell, along with all of his fallen angels. Now, there's one section of what we might call Gehenna called Tartarus, and there's angels there. But in the truest sense, when people die today as lost, they don't go to Gehenna, they go to Hades. But it's a place of torment, and it will continue. Uh, Hades is cast into the lake of fire, and that's the final resting place of all the lost people. But just because you couldn't cross over from Hades to Sheol or Sheol to Hades doesn't necessarily mean that you couldn't come out of righteous Sheol for an appearance. You say, well, how do you know? Well, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, they weren't in heaven as we describe it today, because again, all Old Testament saints went to righteous Sheol, and and that place ended at the ascension of Christ, where he led led a host of captives up into heaven. And so today, when you die, immediately absent from the body, present with the Lord, Uh, That's where you go today. You immediately go to the Father's house, and the Father's house, or what we call heaven, that just becomes the capital city of a new universe with a new heaven and a new earth in which the new Jerusalem, the Father's house, is someday going to sit on. So there's a a lot still in front of us. So uh, the woman of Endor had, had no power over Samuel. She didn't bring him up from the dead. And so, you know, there are these mediums and people go to them and they say, will you speak to my loved one? And and they have some kind of encounter. At best, those are either frauds or those are demonic spirits. But this was no demonic spirit. This was indeed Samuel because God allowed it for him to come up. And it was the ultimate rebuke to Saul. So it is sad to read what Saul uh, did the very prohibition that he had set. Uh, he went against himself. We see a lot of that today, don't we, Rick, with masks and everything else. And people set prohibitions and they say one thing and live another way. And we call it hypocrisy. Um, there's some debate whether Saul went to heaven. I think he went to heaven uh, simply because in 2819, he went to the same place Jonathan went. We know Jonathan was a righteous man. Did he do some stupid things? He did. Uh, but he was used of God, you know, to to prophesy. Uh, you can read of the, the prophecy he makes in First Samuel ten. He was chosen by the Lord Himself. God God allowed Saul to be chosen. 
but he had some issues, but so did most of the other Old Testament saints who would not be considered believers under the New Covenant on this side of grace with the Holy Spirit's interaction in the life of a believer is far different from what they knew. Great question uh, often comes up. That's one of the favorite questions people in the Ukraine like to ask me. Almost every trip I've made to Ukraine, when we do Q&A, that always comes up. So anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Paul from Bluffton writes, I was listening February 1st to the Bible line, and immediately after Anthony asked a question about the difference between priests and prophets, a dialogue ensued, and Francis Chan was mentioned in a negative light. I have some good Christian brothers who listen to him regularly, and if what Pastor Brogy said about him catering to the gay community is true, I need to share that with my brethren. Can you guide me to where I can find it to share it with my brothers about Francis Chan? So Paul asked if that was live just a few weeks ago, and it is, just like this day in February is live. It's not that we would never rebroadcast it. Maybe I'm doing a funeral some Tuesday, and Rick will choose this Bible line, but we are here live today in the studio in this day in February, but no, that was a live question that Anthony uh, called in. Um, Francis Chan is kind of an interesting fellow. He, he went to actually John MacArthur Seminary Master's University, which is a great school, one of the few schools that I feel like I can really get behind and recommend and, you know, encourage people to go to. Uh, he pastored a church uh, called Cornerstone Community Church out in uh, California, but then he began to drift, and some would um, put the point of departure, <clears throat> at least where they became aware that something different was happening, when Mike Gendron came to his church. Many of you know Mike Gendron. He's a really good guy. He's a good brother, went to Dallas Seminary. He was there a couple of years after I. He didn't go through the THM, but he went through the MABS, but he's a converted Roman Catholic. I mean, he was like hardcore wanting to be a priest, and then he found the Lord, and whoa, he was blown away by the discrepancies in Roman Catholicism with what the Scripture teaches. And so he has a whole ministry uh, around Roman Catholics trying to help them to see the difference between what Roman Catholicism teaches, especially in reference to salvation, the most important things, and what the Bible actually says. Well, Gendron spoke at Chan's church, and after he spoke, when there was a planned Q&A, Chen shut it down, and then he apologized to the church for inviting him. And uh, that was sad because Gendron's a really solid brother. And if you have questions about Roman Catholicism, what people often call, I say, one, the best book to buy was one that was done in 61, 1961 by Lorraine Bettner, still in print. Uh, but maybe the best ministry where you can hear live teaching would be Mike Gendron's ministry because he deals with a lot of the specificities. Well, it was a short time later that Chen left his church, called him a bunch of losers, and began to associate himself with charismatics, which was the opposite of what he was taught at Master Seminary, and Roman Catholics. Um, he will be seen at times praying with Roman Catholic priests. He has since embraced the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the bread and the juice of the communion table becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. And he argues that the rest of the church is an error and that this is a new doctrine to say it's only symbolic, held only in the last four or 500 years. How, how wrong could he be? The scripture teaches it. Beyond that, you know, you could, you could be off on, on transubstantiation, really think it was true and still go to heaven 
But now he is involved in the, you know, International House of Prayer, IHOP, and he's a speaker at those conferences, and they have heretics like Michael Brown and Todd White. Todd White, that came up recently, I think, on the Bible line. Um, he claims to have healed hundreds of people, though there's not one stitch of evidence that he's ever healed a single person. He's a fraud and a fake and right now has COVID and it's created heart problems. He can't heal himself. Heal yourself, physician. Maybe the Nazareth, the people of Nazareth would say to him. And he speaks with Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer is just a confirmed heretic. But you see, you know, people will come and, oh, you know, we're really glad to be here. And, you know, you're like Joyce Meyer. You open the Bible. Well, I hope I'm not like Joyce Meyer. And I hope I don't open the Bible like her because most of what she says is out of context and distorted. Uh, Francis Chan has now become a component of the new apostolic reformation theology. And that comes up here in the Bible line from time to time. And it's just uh, the new apostolic reformation, as they call it. They say that the office of prophet and the office of apostle has been reestablished. That just like there was original 12 apostles, there's a new set today. Uh, So they speak with apostolic theology. Now you have a canon of scripture uh, that is not closed. It's it's the Bible plus. Um, he, he's got some real issues. Recently came out in again. Very often a man's morality will dictate his theology, and oftentimes time will tell. We've seen other people drift in recent years. Some who were pastors of large churches. Some who were musicians with Hillsong and Bethel, and others who now totally renounce the faith, and um, and oftentimes there's a moral issue, but he came out recently and he said homosexuality is no worse than divorce. Well, I, I beg to differ. All sin can be forgiven, but it is different because God describes sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6, not just homosexuality, but any kind of sexual sin, as a greater sin and that it's a scar against your own person. So... Um, you know, he's really errant, and so if your friends are listening to him with a sense of enthusiasm, unless they're listening to stuff 20 years ago, um, they're listening to the wrong guy. Um, you know, again, it's possible for someone to give a sermon, and it sounds really good, and, okay, think about Beth Moore, for instance. Five years ago, she was preaching modesty in the church. Now she basically called those who came out in the evangelical circles in favor of modesty just recently, and it hit all the social medias. You know, she didn't use the term a bunch of losers, but that's how she described them and rebuked those pastors who are defending biblical modesty. Why? Because that's what chameleons do. They change with the tide. They change with the culture. They they give people what they want to hear. And now after she has made millions and millions of dollars off the backs of evangelicals, she is now no longer a Southern Baptist because they're obviously cramping her style. So I say all that to say is that you can have sometimes a person like the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, don't really want to give him any press time, but he pastored a church with 8,000 and now renounces the faith, divorced his wife. She's, well, I won't get into what she's doing, but he marches in gay parades and everything else. Francis Chan is a heretic. I don't know how else to say it. He lacks discernment for someone 
to embrace himself with Todd White, who teaches the little God theology of Kenneth Copeland and other people, the Word of Faith movement, for him to embrace himself with that, and then to basically say that Roman Catholicism has the gospel, he's a heretic. And your friends should be cautious. They obviously lack discernment because they're undertaught and they don't know their Bible. And what false teachers often do is they stir you emotionally, but not an emotional stirring that comes through the truth of Holy Scripture. And therein lies the danger. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. I think we have a live caller who's been waiting. We do indeed. We have Alberto from Savannah on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Well, good morning, gentlemen. My question is about the demons, you know, Second Timothy. Um, now, the Apostle Paul said that demon has forsaken him. Now, the demon, he said the demon forsaken him. Was it a short while? Or did, he never said that demons forsaken the Lord Jesus Christ. That the, the Apostle Paul said he forsaken him. Now, my question is, too, relating to all this, that, that, that demons was really truly saved, or or were they, or he forsake, or did he really later on uh, uh, abandon his faith, or he didn't abandon his faith, or was it his art fall in the category, the parable, you know, that the, the soul were two types of the second soul, soil, and the third type of soil? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, Demas, uh, Paul mentions him in Second Timothy uh, 4. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Um, it's, it's an interesting description of this man. Most would argue that Demas was not an uh, unbeliever. But he, 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 because he loved this world, he deserted me. It's a Greek word that means he, um, he left him in the lurch, so to speak. I have the Greek text up here in front of me. And Paul was in prison. He was facing a death sentence. And that's when Demas said, I'm out of here. He didn't want to be associated with him. Because to associate yourself with uh, a prisoner was basically to potentially put yourself in your harm's sake. This is why Jesus can describe in Matthew 25, there's three groups of people in that great parable. You know, Lord, when did we say you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you in prison? He said, whatever you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did unto me. Because prison in biblical times is kind of like prison in the Ukraine. You know, when we would go to the Ukraine, every trip, I've been there 40 plus times is I would bring my suitcase filled with clothes. And, you know, I would give them to this brother who was spent eight years of his life in prison, and he would bring the clothes to these guys because whatever you went into prison with, that was it. If you went in with one pair of underwear, that's what you had. Unless someone brought you something from the outside. If you went in with no coat in the summer... And then you're there in the wintertime when those prisons are like 30 degrees on the inside, when it's 10 below on the outside, that's how you live. So um, there's a compassion that, you know, we sometimes have the opportunity to show in prison ministry. Well, in biblical times, when you identified yourself with someone who was um, indeed uh, in prison, you were risking your own life. Um, so Demas loves the things of this life, Second Timothy 4.10 says. 
Um, we don't know the full details of Demas's situation, but it's evident that he decided that basically what Satan had to offer, because Satan's the god of this world, and people, Christians, follow after the god of this world, not typically knowingly, I'm here to serve the devil, but by the actions that they take where they love the world more than they love the things of God. And that's why there's an admonition in 1 John, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away. But then he gives a qualifying statement, uh, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So is it possible for a Christian to love the world? And the answer is yes. Otherwise, there would be no need for an admonition to save people not to love the world. But again, if that's someone's pattern in life, then certainly um, they have their priorities out of sync. And the tragedy of Demas is still being lived out today by born-again Christians who will often choose the temporary benefits of this world over what Jesus admonished us to do, to lay up treasure in heaven. And many people are left out of the kingdom for the same reason, because Jesus said in the parable of the sower how the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches will choke out the word, and so they are unfruitful. So anyway, it's a good question. You might want to download, um, this is uh, who they called? Uh, Alberto. Alberto, yeah, from Savannah. Alberto, you might want to download... If you have a smartphone, the Search the Scriptures app, and I think you would find that useful. And I've preached through the pastoral epistles uh, that we typically have dubbed First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus for the last 400 years or so. And I go through this very, very carefully, every single verse in those uh, three letters that Paul wrote, basically to strengthen pastors and in turn to strengthen the church. I don't remember in that the series, did you cover what the uh, bad thing that Alexander the coppersmith it's did? It's in there. It's yes, in there. It's All in right. there, yep. Good deal. All right, check it out. Uh, you can go to the App Store or the Google Play Store and look up uh, Search the Scriptures with Dr. Carl Brogy. Kelly from Rinkin says, I know God heals every day, but at what point did healings through humans like the apostles stop, and where is it documented in Scripture? Well, there were certain... Um, characteristics that someone uh, was met, certain qualifications, I might say, that deemed them to be an apostle that not everyone shared. Now, let me just qualitatively interrupt myself by saying that God still heals today. But there's a difference between God healing in response to the prayers of his people or sometimes the prayer of one person, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, uh, versus God healing through an apostle or an apostolic delegate. And so, for instance, Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, Paul, if you remember, in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in that whole section, uh, defends his apostleship. He says in 11.1, for instance, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband. Paul shared the gospel with the Corinthians, and through his preaching of the gospel, they were born again, and so they were betrothed, so to speak, to one husband, so that to Christ I might present to you a pure virgin. 
Uh, in other words, once they were saved, he wanted them to grow and mature, that purity of life would characterize their behavior. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that's what often happens. That's what a Todd White does. That's what a Joyce Meyer does, is to go back to a prior question today. They, they take people away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, and they bring in all these extras. And people, again, who are untaught or just undertaught, and sadly, that's where the church is largely today in America. I went to a conference in November and with a lot of pastors, and one of the points of dialogue is how fervent Christians are often traveling one to two hours every week just to go to church because they can't find a solid church in their area. And But it's important to them. And then he goes on and he says... Um, Uh, But what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are, we being apostles in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. There's the new apostolic reformation movement. They're fakes. They're frauds. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ as people have done throughout the church age. No wonder, he says, we're not surprised, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants, if his ministers, if his pastors, if his so-called apostles also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. And then he continues the argument on into the 12th chapter, and then he says here um, in 12.11, let me pick it up over there. It says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody, because an apostle is an apostle. Now, he argues in 1 Corinthians 9 that he was an apostle, A, because he had seen the risen Christ, and B, because he had been personally selected by Christ. And if you had seen the resurrected Lord, which Paul did in the Damascus Road, and B, if you had personally been selected by him, because you could claim those things where it's not true, so God would then authenticate your life. And so then he says in the next verse, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, Paul is saying, the reason you can believe my claim to be a true apostle in deference to these false apostles who are only agents of the evil one is because I performed with all perseverance, not once, but as a way of life, miracles or signs, semion, that's a miracle with a message, and wonders and miracles. So signs, wonders, and miracles, three words that are used to describe the supernatural. Now follow this. If everyone can do these things, then Paul's argument that these are signs of a true apostle totally falls apart. So it comes down to is the Scripture authoritative? And if the Scripture is authoritative, which it is, though in some people's minds it's up for debate, certainly not in my mind, but if it is the authoritative Word of God, then we have a plumb line by which we can judge our thinking. 
And God is clear that the ability to do the miraculous was restricted to those who were apostles. And if you just look at the course of biblical history, God hasn't always done the miraculous as a way of life through his servants. You know, Adam and Eve never did a miracle. All the people who followed from Adam and Eve's loins, like Enoch, who is a man who walked with God, he he never did a miracle. Now, he had a miracle done to him, but he never did a miracle. In fact, we don't see anyone doing a miracle. Abraham, who's the father of the faithful, he's called a friend of God. He never did a miracle. But we find God doing the first cluster of miracles in Holy Scripture through Moses, and then for a short time through Joshua. Again, usually at the great turning points of biblical history, God will do miracles. And then hundreds of years go by. You know, Isaiah never did a miracle. Now, they witnessed miracles. Ezekiel never did a miracle. Jeremiah never did a miracle. In fact, we don't see miracles happening again until Elijah and Elisha. And again, it's one of the turning points in Israel's history because they are on the edge of apostasy. And so God raises up these two men of God for a short period of time to do the miraculous, to bring the people of God back to repentance. And then they cease, no miracles again. And so the next cluster of miracles that come is not until Christ and the apostles come on the scene. And after the apostles were gone, the miracles through an individual cease. Now, we sometimes use the word miracle very loosely. You know, someone holds a newborn baby in their hand. They say, this is a miracle. Well, not in the truest sense. A miracle defies the natural laws that God wrote into the universe. But it is a newborn, obviously, the handiwork of God and a special gift of God. But they defied the super, they defied the natural realm when when the Red Sea was split in two, when someone who had been paralyzed from birth was able to walk. And so those were the kinds of things that the apostles did, and God did those to confirm them as God's messengers. And there's coming another time, still in the future, when we'll see the final cluster of miracles, and it will be during the Great Tribulation period, and there will be two men who will preach from the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. God willing, we are going to Israel in May. Uh, If someone wanted to register in the next three days, we might be able to squish you in. No vaccine now required. They just changed the rules. So you don't even have to have been vaccinated or have a booster. It just came out on Sunday. With that said, uh, the next cluster will happen on the Temple Mount through two witnesses. And most believe, and myself included, that those two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, the same two that Christ had a discussion with on the Mount of Transfiguration about the coming kingdom. Uh, In either case, um, I hope that answers your question. It's a great question, Kelly, from Rinkin, Georgia. Let's go to the next one. And right down the road uh, in Guyton, Georgia, Bert asks the following. uh, What does Dr. Brogie mean exactly when he says, air chair question and straw man argument. He mentions these from time to time, just looking for clarity. And I think you're usually saying armchair. Armchair, armchair, yeah. An armchair question is a question that, you know, I can't answer in 15 seconds or even in 10 minutes sometimes. It's very involved. And to um, answer it well and to answer it uh, in faithfulness to the Scripture with Scripture interpreting Scripture It takes some 
detailed explanation. And so sometimes, you know, someone will call on the Bible line and I could give them a short answer, but it's going to be incomplete and it typically won't satisfy. But especially if I've preached on the passage, then I will direct them specifically to the message that I preached and ask them to listen to it. And then if they have a question, uh, a straw man argument is just a theological phrase that's used to describe um, some position that is not accurate, and then you tear it down. So um, maybe a straw man argument, say, against Roman Catholicism would be, well, you know, Roman Catholics believe that you can sin all you want and then just go to confession on Saturday and get it right with the priest and you're good for another week. Now, that's a straw man argument. They don't teach that. Uh, So sometimes people create these false positions that someone holds to, even within evangelicalism. You know, okay, here's, here's one that's pretty typical. They would say, you know, those maybe Baptists, so it's certainly not exclusive to Baptists. You know, those Baptists, they teach once saved, always saved. And once you're saved, you can just go and live however you want because you can't lose eternal life. Well, actually, they don't teach that. Now, there may be some person who would say he's a Baptist or even a Presbyterian or an evangelical because the doctrine of eternal security is held by about 90% of Bible-believing Christians in the world. And you might find someone who will say, well, you know, I'm going to heaven. I know I'm living with my girlfriend. We've been living together the last three years, but I received Jesus as my Savior, and I may not have much reward, but I'm going. Well, no, they wouldn't teach that the doctrine of eternal security can leave you in such a comfortable position because eternal security and assurance is based certainly on the finished work of Christ, and it is impossible to lose something that's eternal. He that believes has, it's a present tense, eternal life. You can't lose something that's eternal. God has loved us with an everlasting love, and that's why the Bible says we can know not wonder or maybe or no, you can know that you have eternal life because it is secure, but assurance of salvation is also given on the basis of a changed life, that if you know Christ, then you will display that change of life because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. This is what the Protestant reformers uh, underscored in the doctrine of perseverance, what they called perseverance of the saints. And really it comes right from the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is describing the final seven-year time frame in human history where persecution is going to be unparalleled amongst the people of God. These are tribulation saints. The church will have been removed by this time, but he makes a very very clear statement that um, he said, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. So there'll be tribulation that will come from heaven, God's judgments, but man will also persecute and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another. These are not true Christians. You fall away from the faith. It just means you were never born again. First John two nineteen. for if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But the fact that they went out from us, John argues, they were never really of us. Because if you have it, you can't lose it. And so these pastors that I referenced earlier, 
who have now apostatized and some who pastored big churches, evangelical churches, and now have renounced the faith, uh, they were never born again. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And by the way, that's how you would think Satan would work, right? I mean, he disguises himself as an angel of light. So he'll come into a pulpit and, and he'll mix truth with the message, and then eventually he'll introduce error. But because lawlessness is increased, I'm reading Matthew 24, 12, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures, or some translations say perseveres to the end, he will be saved. Now, are you saved by perseverance? No, but if you are saved, you will persevere. So those who would say, this would be a straw man, you can get saved and you can live however you want. That's a straw man. And that's not a reason to reject eternal security. That's a reason to reject a misrepresentation of eternal security because they've created a straw man. Good question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Jovan from Manhattan, New York is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead, Jovan. We're listening to you. Thanks for calling today. How can we be of help? Hello? Go ahead, Jovan. Yes. You're on the air. We're oh. listening to you. Go Hi. ahead. Hey, Pastor Carl. Hey, man. Uh, I asked a question uh, last week, and, and I kind of, I don't I didn't think it came out right, but um, if a person... Like in, in my situation, I've been married before. I mean, I've been married and divorced. She, oh, my wife divorced me, um, but she had been married before. And I was wondering, now that I'm living a life of singleness for the Lord, if I was able to leave the door open, if she was ever to come back, um, even if she's if she's been married before, um, I was thinking that it wouldn't be possible because. Um, her first husband, unless her first husband, as long as her first husband is still living. Well, it's so, a good, am I right on this thinking? Well, not entirely, no. So um, so for the sake of argument, suppose, uh, you know, she was, she was married once, got divorced, she married you, divorced you. Then the question is, could she go back to her first husband if he was still living and wanted her back? And God would say, absolutely not. And he would say that. In Deuteronomy 24, and let me just read to you from 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And by the way, that phrase, found some indecency in her, created two schools of thought in Jesus's day over the issue of marriage and divorce. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. One school said you can divorce your wife for any reason you want. She burns the food. You don't like her mother-in-law. Her voice is too screechy. Anything you can think of. And the other school said, no, you can only divorce your wife for sexual immorality. And they come to Jesus and they test him, Matthew 19 says. And they're basically asking, which school do you identify with? And he takes it far and beyond either school of thought, all the way back to God's original design that divorce is only to be broken, I mean, marriage is only to be broken by death. So she finds no favor in his eyes because um, he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house. 
and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her, the second husband, and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord, and you should not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So God is really clear. Um, and, and let me just say, occasionally you'll meet someone who will say, well, that's just part of the Old Testament law, and that's not applicable today. Well, take out your concordance and just look up the word abomination. And every time God mentions the word abomination, I can tell you it's fully applicable at any time in human history. It doesn't matter that it may not be addressed directly in the New Testament. Um, The Biden administration just appointed someone recently to a major point of leadership in the White House. He dresses like a woman, boasts of bestiality, a subject that's never addressed in the New Testament. But I can tell you bestiality is as much a wickedness and a sin in our day as it was in Moses' day where he addresses it. And so God calls it an abomination. It's like he says for a woman to lie with a woman or a man to lie with a man. This is an abomination. God hasn't changed in his moral code. And so if someone was married, divorced his wife, she got married again, he dumps her, can he go back to the first? Absolutely not. Why? Because then you have a legalized form of adultery. And God does not want marriage to give that kind of picture. Under the old covenant, marriage was a picture of God's relationship with Israel. And under the new covenant, marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his people, the church, the body of Christ. So, Jovan, some would argue that, um, to answer the specifics, um, that you could certainly go back to your second wife. You can't unscramble eggs. You, I mean, your first wife, your second, but she, but she cannot go back to her first husband. So you're going to have to sort that through. What I would suggest you do is get the Search the Scriptures app, download it, um, and listen to the message on Matthew chapter 19, uh, 1 through, I think I carry it through verse 12. And I think that will fully seal your question. It's a little bit of an armchair question, so I don't want to rush it and just give you counsel to use the phrase that the last caller had said but it's an important question for you. And uh, I think um, and you and I spoke once before. You're living in the Bronx, if I remember, and you called me and asked me for counsel one day. And the most important thing you can do right now, Javon, is walk with the Lord, obey Christ, live a sexually pure life, which God wants you to do. Look, man, this thing is coming down to the end. Uh, we're living in days of lawlessness, days of sexual perversion. I mean, just I was just so disgusted yesterday when I see this new appointment by the Biden administration of a guy who boasts in bestiality, and the president of the United States appoints him to serve in his White House. This is wickedness beyond wickedness, beyond perversion, 
and God's not going to put up with it much longer. Best thing you can do is just obey God and walk with him. All right, very good. As a matter of fact, that was what I was reading in this morning's uh, daily Bible reading, Leviticus 18. All right, all right. All right. Um, Richard from Wittonsville, Massachusetts writes, can someone be rebaptized to renew their baptismal vows even if they think they were saved when they first got baptized? Okay, so Richard, it's a good question. And uh, I happen to know Richard because we've dialogued before. Um, We broadcast in Whitensville and all across New England and different stations. And so I know a little bit, obviously, of your history and care about you a lot. And I think one of the reasons there's such a sense of, you know, I don't know, consternation, your heart over should I be rebaptized again is probably I think there's an excellent chance that the first time you were baptized, you weren't really converted. And just think about it for a second. You know, you, it's not that a Christian can't be disobedient, but, you know, you got involved in smoking pot and all these other things, and, and it didn't seem to appear that your lifestyle had fundamentally changed. I know it has now. You have a passion and a hunger for the things of God. And that's not to say that God couldn't be real to you. He can. He's very real to someone before they are born again. Uh, Because Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. So there's a pre-salvation work of the Spirit of God that we experience, where we can go to a church, we can be moved by the preaching. Jesus, even in the parable of sower, Luke gives the fullest account in Luke 8, 13, of people who receive the word with joy, they believe for a while. We might say they make a profession of faith. I'm saved. I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus. But then they fall away. Why? Because they believe in their mind, but not with the heart. With the heart, man believes in the righteousness. And so they're not fundamentally changed from the inside out. I'm not talking about perfection. But I am speaking of a new direction that life takes on. And I think one of the reasons you're probably asking this is because you're thinking, well, maybe I really wasn't saved back there. Or the Holy Spirit's causing you to to have some doubt here. And sometimes people will come to me, I say sometimes, it happens probably oh, 10 or 12 times every year of someone who will come to our church and they sit under biblical preaching for the first time and their life is so dramatically changed and some things begin to uh, sink in their minds about the gospel and grace. And and they'll say, you know, I'm not really sure I understood the gospel back yonder when I walked the aisle of my church and my preacher baptized me. Should I be baptized again? And I'll tell them, I said, look, here, here's the worst thing that could happen. Uh, you, you, you die and you go to heaven and And God says to you, you know, when that preacher baptized you the first time and you were 12, you were definitely saved. Um, But the fact that you hadn't grown much uh, and maybe had some inconsistencies, uh, you really doubted if you really knew the Lord, but you wanted to err on the side of obedience. You wanted to cross every T and dot every I, and, and I'm proud of you for wanting to err on the side of obedience rather than disobedience. Or, you know, um, someone may die and God would say, well, one of the reasons you had so much doubt in your heart and you wondered whether you should be baptized again was for the simple reason 
My spirit put that doubt in your heart. The Holy Spirit of God was prodding you and pricking you. And so you should have been baptized. It's not a salvation issue, but it is an obedience issue, and you want to grow. And sometimes God uses a, a rebaptism, um, baptism after conversion. Um, every, not every Sunday night, but two or three uh, Sunday nights a month, we do a meeting called Meet the Pastor. And this past Sunday was no different. And someone came, and they had come down front on Sunday morning, and we assumed nothing. And I said, well, you need to come to uh, the Meet the Pastor meeting. He said, I'm 50% sure I'm going to heaven. And what would you have to do to be 100%? He said, try to obey the commandments of God. And obviously, he was not saved. And Sunday night, he understood the gospel. And in faith, he called upon Christ. And I said to him, now, are you 100% sure now? Yes. And, and he was able to give the right answer. And so his question is, should I be baptized again? And my question was, yes. Because to be baptized before you're saved is like wearing a wedding band before you're married. It's like having your funeral before you die. It's just, it's meaningless. It's totally meaningless. And sadly, in so many churches today, people walk an aisle, say the sinner's prayer without any understanding. Does understanding precede conversion? The biblical answer is yes. You don't have to understand a whole lot, but it's more than just invite Jesus into your heart or accept Christ or commit your life to Jesus. Terms that the Bible never uses, it never says to accept Christ. It says to believe in him. It never says commit your life to Christ. It says to receive him, to believe in him, to come by faith in him. It never says to invite Jesus into your heart. That's a new expression, only about 75, 80 years old. And so you have to know that you're bankrupt, that you can do nothing. And you have to be willing to admit that your sin is offensive to God. It's called a change of mind. It's called repentance, such that you want God to forgive it and to change you. And that's when real conversion takes place. So I think because you have doubts, I would err on the side of obedience, and I would be baptized. Hey, we're just about out of time, but let me give a plug here. This Friday night at Community Bible Church, we have a pig-picking, chicken-licking oyster roast. Uh, They told me we had 1,100 last time pre-COVID. This is the biggest oyster roast pig-picking in all of Beaufort County every year when we have it. We haven't had it for a couple years because of COVID. But I want to invite you this Friday night to come. Uh, It's $7 for a single person, $14 for a couple, $21 for a family. You know, we got families in our church that have six or seven kids. That's a bargain uh, to feed your family for $21. It's a lot of fun and great fellowship. You can go online at communitybiblechurch.us to register and get any information that you'd like to have. God bless you. I hope you will walk with Jesus Christ this day.